0: My cat Rachel is the
1: silliest cat I know. One time, she played inside a paper bag for three hours. What a mystery. But I'm glad her health isn't. Thanks to the color-changing litter from Fresh Step Crystals Health Monitoring Litter. This premium color-changing litter has pH-activated crystals that can help me detect potential illness early. That makes it easy for me to stay on top of her health and well-being. I may not understand all of Rachel's silly quirks, but I can keep up with the important things. Find Fresh Step Crystals Health Monitoring Litter at a store near you. Fresh Step is a registered trademark of the Clorox Pet Products Company.
2: The year is 2004.
1: And do you want to play a podcast?
2: The movie Saw.
3: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I am a lover of movies, and I love talking about movies with my friend, Amy Nicholson, who often writes for the New York Times, but also is, and I have to say, Amy, I've talked to a lot of people recently, uh, people love your takes on things. And Aww. if you're not following Amy uh, on social media, get to it, because if you are... Haven't read an Amy Nicholson review. You're you're missing out. You're missing out. And lately, I feel like you've been really chunking out some bangers. Like I've some been real some
1: fun. <laughs> yeah, they've been
3: great. I've been loving. I mean, you're always oh, great you. to read. But these have been like, you know, I I say that you never take down movies, but you do examine them in a way that I feel like it's an elevated way. And I and I and I think it's a respect given, but I laugh so hard. When something does not work for you, it is my favorite time. It is my favorite time to get into your, your reviews. Paul, you are
2: warming my heart. That means so much. I had so much fun writing about Expendables for it. When the New York
3: Times gives me a movie, yes. I can just be
2: like, ha, ha, ha. Oh, well, Paul, if this podcast is going to be about torturing me with kindness, you did it. I'm dead. You've killed me.
3: Well, let's get into torture because we are going to go into a franchise that is gigantic, a franchise that is truly one of the biggest horror franchises ever made. The Saw franchise, a franchise that we both have stayed away from, but a franchise that I think, while the film itself might not be revolutionary, it is a movie that really uh, you know, sends its tentacles out across the horror universe. And I think that this movie forever changes the landscape of horror. And you could say that from the people involved to maybe the type of horror that we're open to accepting. Yeah.
2: I mean, I feel like we're going to be talking about some adult stuff later on. I think, I mean, I think I don't see how we can even talk about this movie without talking about the phrase torture porn and pulling it apart and seeing if it fits this movie. And that means also talking about porn and why we would even put that adjective on a horror film in the first place. I mean, there's so much to dig in with that. I put off watching this movie for my entire life because I was too scared, kind of like the girls on that podcast, Too scared, Didn't Watch, which I love. You know, <laughs> I was. I felt safer reading the Wikipedia entry and being like, cool, okay, got it, I'm done. I don't need wow, to watch the movie because I, I was too
3: scared. I love that you read the Wikipedia entry without watching the film. I didn't know much about it. And I think that my um, interpretation of this film confused it a lot with Hostel. And it's a very different movie than Hostel. I think that this is a movie that is very similar to Robert Rodriguez's movie that we talked about here on the show, El Mariachi. You know, a movie that wasn't meant to be this big, giant hit, kind of just a low-budget proof of concept. And it becomes this movie that I think is the biggest hit of the Sundance class in the year it was there. Oh, yeah. It was in Sundance. So, Amy, pull up your tricycle, turn on your TV, and uh, look at your belly because there's an X there, and inside your belly is a tape recorder that you have to hit play on because it's about time that we unspool it. The year is 2004, and horror is about to be upended again. All right, let's jump back a few decades. The 1970s, the drive-in hit Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which we did here on the show, led to a major hit, Halloween. And Halloween inspired the 80s slasher explosion, which took over the world with Nightmare on Elm Street, which we also did here on the show. And Nightmare on Elm Street begat dozens of dumb sequels and idiotic stabby stab nonsense. And in the 90s, Scream, which we also did on the show, made fun of all those, like, final girl cliches, and it kicks off a whole new era of self-referential teen horror. That's around when a 21-year-old Australian movie critic for a Saturday morning kids show went on a rant about how boring and formulaic he found the usual slasher tropes were.
2: How a slasher film works
1: generally. All right. This is how it generally works
2: with a famous graph. You've got a bit of boring stuff, then a death, then another bit of boring stuff, And a death, then another bit of character, uh, character, boring stuff, boring stuff, maybe a bit of nookie, a death! And then it all goes to the end. Now, what Kevin Williamson did when he wrote Scream was all he did to make it a mega hit, he made
1: these bits in between the deaths interesting. He made them like 90210, he put good dialogue. See, in the usual slasher films, these bits are all crap and it's like, hurry up on the fast forward bit and kill. And then, uh,
2: so Kevin Williamson made these bits interesting, boom, horror goes through the roof. That's Lee Whannell in 1998. Right after this, he is going to enroll in film school. And he's not going to enroll in the best film school in Melbourne. He, he enrolls in the mediocre film school for all of the kids who didn't get into the really, really good one. Uh, Lee and his film school best friend, James Wan, did not even actually apply to the good school because they thought, ugh, we're not even into arty nonsense. They think of other film school kids as like making these black and white experimental movies about ladies' sex parts, and all the filmmakers are just these dudes who wear black berets. But Lee and James... They like fun movies, zombie movies. And after the 1999 low-budget horror flick The Blair Witch Project becomes a global sensation, another film we did, they're like, we can do that. Let's just come up with an idea that we can shoot for cheap. What about two guys locked in a bathroom with a dead body? And if we chain up the two guys, maybe we don't even have to build another set. Oh, and by the way, we have done movies on every single one of the movies we just mentioned besides the Lady Parts one. So head into our dark and creepy archives if you have not heard these episodes already. Because thanks to Lee and James, we are here to talk
3: about 2004's Saw. Saw. James Wan directed it. Lee Winel wrote the script and starred in it as one of the two chained up guys. The other man is Carrie Elways. Yes, we've already covered The Princess Bride 2. This is really a callback to every one of our episodes. <laughs> and the evil mastermind who brought them to the world's most grossest bathroom in order to play a game is Tobin Bell as Jigsaw. Saw has gotten a bad rap over the years. It's become shorthand for torture porn. It's spun off into a very bewildering amount of time-jumping sequels with different killers and jigsaw impersonators that are almost impossible to keep straight. But let's emphasize right now that Saw was also a Sundance movie. It was at the festival the same year as Super Size Me, Napoleon Dynamite, Primer, Dig, and Garden State. And you can make a pretty solid argument that it had the biggest impact of them all. Saw was
2: officially released on October 29th, 2004, and this $700,000 independent film launched a franchise that has made literally over a billion dollars. I am not exaggerating. Literally over a billion dollars. And if you were going to rank a list of the top grossing horror franchises, it would go like this. Number one, Halloween. Number two, Friday the 13th. Number three, Nightmare on Elm Street. Number four, Scream. Number five, Saw number five after all those heavy hitters. And of course, James and Lee would go on to make Insidious together. Then James would direct The Conjuring and Fast and Furious 7 and Aquaman and Lee would direct like Upgrade, The Invisible Man with Elizabeth Moss. That is not bad for two 20 something kids from Australia who did not even go to the best film school in Melbourne. So what was in the zeitgeist that Halloween weekend of 2004? Fittingly, it was a song about having a bond with someone that Like Jigsaw goes on for years. And it lasts even when you argue with them, and even when that person is replaced by somebody else. And that person goes by the horror movie appropriate nickname, My Boo. Tell us about it, Usher and Alicia Keys.
3: Good song. And look, I got to say, that should have been the end credit song for Saw. I mean, it would have worked. I mean, whose <laughs> boo is it? Is it Jigsaw's boo? Yeah. Is it Adam's boo?
2: He will always be our boo. He is not leaving. In fact, as soon as we finish recording this episode, I have to go see Saw 10. Our oh, boo will my. not leave us alone.
3: The boo keeps on coming. You know, Amy, last week we teased that neither of us had seen Saw. We did. I put it off. I put it off forever because I was really
2: freaked out by Saw when it came out in 2004 in a way that made me not want to go near the theater. I knew that it was grimy. I knew that it looked really scary in the commercials. And I just stayed away from it. And what I was realizing as I was thinking about it in my head that it's because it was tapping into the same feeling that I had when people talked about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which we weren't alive to witness. Like, here is a horror film that is dangerous and will actually freak you out on such a primal level Maybe it's best you just stay away, Amy, because you are a chicken, which
3: is true. I am an absolute chicken, and I thought this movie was going to be so gory. You see, I I get that, but I didn't think about it as being a movie that was going to be like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I thought it was going to be a movie that played to the lowest common denominator. This idea of what Hostel was. Like, Hostel really worked when it came out. If you don't remember Hostel, it basically is about, a hostel where people are brutally killed and this idea of torture porn came up, right? You're just watching someone get sliced and diced. I refuse
2: to see Hostel 2 for that same reason. I've still never seen Hostel. I was staying in a lot
3: of hostels at the
2: time. Absolutely not. I was not going to watch that movie.
3: Oh, Absolutely. I mean, I didn't see it either. I just knew it was super bloody. And I love Eli Roth. I think Eli Roth makes really great stuff, but I just didn't want to subject myself to it. I know that, that I'm a sensitive creature and I can't take all that stuff in. And I think this movie, or at least the marketing of this movie, is capitalizing on Hostel because Hostel was a hit. And the marketing of this movie was a poster with a sawed off limb right? It's a, it's just a picture of a hand, you know, just on a gross, grimy floor. And I'm like, out, not interested. But little did I know that this film is a thriller, a whodunit. It's a movie that has a sense of humor, but also it's a movie that really plays with tension. And I might even go so far to say it's a movie that kind of reminds me of a movie that Hitchcock might make. Because we start in this room with these two men. They wake up. They don't know how they got there. They're both chained to the wall. And they're trying to figure out what's going on. Calm
1: down. Just, just calm down. Are you hurt? I don't know. Yeah. What's your name? My name is very fucking confused. What's your name? What's going on here? My name is
3: Lawrence Gordon. I'm a doctor. I just woke up here, just like you. <sighs> and this first 15 minutes is a taut thriller. And it continues to be taught throughout the entire film. The grossness of the film, yeah, it's there in points. But honestly, in watching it, it's not as front and center as I thought. It's much more in my head. That's actually weirdly true. I mean, this is a movie that I think the
2: MPAA and I tried to give it like an NC 17 right off yes. the bat. And the producers were like, no, watch it with us frame by frame. You actually don't see that much gore because we didn't have money for special effects. So you're not gonna see somebody's limb get cut off because we couldn't afford to. It's it's all done with kind of grimy implication. I but mean, it really is grimy.
3: The the most offensive thing about this movie is the set deck. I mean, the set decoration here, they shot this in a converted warehouse, and you can tell. Every apartment, (laughs) every apartment is like, they've just put curtains up in front of non-existent windows. The set design is bare bones shitty. This movie was shot in 18 days. It was supposed to go direct to home video. And there are elements about it that feel like that. There are elements in this film that feel like you are watching a porn. Uh, You know, it really, it has that energy of, The way it's lit, the way they're shooting it, like you can tell it's all one spot. But what elevates it truly is the acting, the style in which they are turning the screw, and you start to forget about all that other stuff. All that stuff that we want to see in a movie, the big, even though the movie's supposed to be grimy and dark, this is a low-budget movie. And it feels it even more to me than Texas Chainsaw Massacre.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I feel like there's an alternate world where this movie doesn't have... Carrie Elway's or Danny Glover or Dina Meyer in it, where it's like pretty much all people you don't recognize. And they're like, oh, this was actually a snuff film. And you'd be like, I half believe you in kind of the key of something like, like Blair Witch Project, because it feels so gross and handmade. And it doesn't feel Hollywood, I guess, is really like the clear thing. And that's kind of why I wanted to listen to that clip of Lee really early on, being young, talking about his issues with horror movies. And kind of the formula that they had fallen into. Because, yeah, we love Scream. I love Scream. But even Scream kind of plays by a lot of that same formula of, here are some kids. Let's watch them, like, meet each other. Let's figure out the setup where they're all of a sudden going to start dying, you know? Beautiful people in kind of nicely lit circumstances going through the motions of what a horror film is. And I feel like Saw... Looks at the landscape of horror, you know, because like after Scream, we're going to get like endless copies of I Know What You Did Last Summer, all of those teen movies. And it's like, here's what we're going to do that's completely different. We're not going to do any of that bullshit. Like, you know, I was talking about in that clip about like the boring stuff. And whether I guess if the scenes in between the kills are cool, then that's what Scream did. Right. He's like, what if we just don't even really have that? And we just go straight to like grime and kills. No setup. They're in this room. How did they get there? And they just plunge you. Straight into it. And it's a movie that I think is kind of remarkably free on even, like, the final girl, beautiful girl, like, aesthetic. It's like, here are two men, you know, and Carrie Elways is your final girl. Congrats. And you're like, whoa. I've never (laughs) seen a movie where, like, middle-aged Carrie Elways, sweaty, screaming, skin turning into the color of, like, a piece of rock, is our hero who survives the end of the movie. Like, it's all just wrong. You know,
3: it's just wrong. You know, as you're saying that, what I'm realizing is this is an adult horror film. You know, there are very few horror films that I think cater to an adult audience. Obviously, the Adam character, played by Lee, you know, is younger. But this is not a teen movie. And even going back to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, all these movies that we just talked about, they are all teens. And just simply changing that part of it makes a big, big difference. I think it actually elevates the horror because there is more to lose in a way. like as you grow to an adult, there are there are more things at stake. there are more complications in life. And I think that this movie complicates what a horror film is because our killer isn't just a psychopath. Our killer is trying to teach his victims a lesson to appreciate life because he is dying. It's a really interesting point of view. It's a complicated killer. I and mean, when we come from completely deranged lunatics who kill for fun or kill because they're tormented or kill because I don't even know why Freddy Krueger's killing.
2: They burned him, is... man. <laughs> they wouldn't let him just go ahead and molest those children. And they had to go and burn him. How dare they?
3: Well, I guess. But it wasn't those kids. And I think adults burned him. Yeah. He's got to burn the kids of the adults. I guess. All right. So anyway, (laughs) all I'll say is this, but by putting it into this real world and making this killer, somebody who is, yes, incredibly demented and not doing this the right way, but it becomes a moralistic horror film. There isn't anybody who is completely right or completely wrong in it. I mean, yes, I would argue if you put a uh, reverse bear trap on someone's head, you could probably be considered uh, somewhat wrong, but, The reasoning for that reverse bear trap is to, you know, have this young woman realize that she's given her life over to drugs and that she shouldn't, uh, she shouldn't do that. She should embrace her life. And, and what better way to, to learn that from someone who is losing their life? Isn't that right, Mandy? Do you think that is why he picked you? (laughs)
0: Grateful Mandy. He helped me.
2: Totally. I mean, where this extra spin comes on it, apparently, is like after Lee and James met and they're like, let's do this cheap movie. I don't know. Two guys in a room. What's it going to be about? This is around the time when Lee is like 25 years old and he was going through this period of like really intense anxiety where he had Headaches every day. And he was doing that thing that, like, I definitely relate to. We were like, what if I have a brain tumor? I'm probably going to die. And so he starts going to the hospital to get like CAT scans to be like, am I dying? What's with my headaches? What's happening? What's wrong with me? Am I going to, you know, live this promised life that I've imagined myself living? And, you know, spoiler alert. It was fine. It was just one of those things where, you know, they treat humans like they treat like animals at the vet. I don't know. It's anxiety. You're probably fine. It's just, you're nervous. Don't ask me why go home. But because of that situation, because he was 25 and like grappling with like thinking is, is he going to die? And because since he's going to the hospital all the time, he's surrounded by people who actually have brain tumors, who actually are dying. And so he comes out of this experience thinking, I should not take my health for granted. They're telling me I'm fine and I need to really value that. And so he inserted that idea into Saw. And it is interesting because it really changes then the landscape of what the film is talking about. So many horror films are like, run, run, run. Oh, no, it's a ghost. Oh, no, it's a shark. Oh, no, it's like a demon. And here the horror is really just hinging on a choice. Are you willing to do this horrible choice in order to live? Like, you're not escaping as much as you are making a decision. And the the decision defines whether or not you live. And the decision is
3: horrible. Oh, absolutely. But I think what's interesting here is the reason why Jigsaw has brought them to these rooms, to these torture devices, is because he feels that they have made decisions that have put them in a position to take life for granted. (laughs) I am a little confused about Adam. I don't really understand what Adam did to put well, his yeah. life.
2: This is what I wanted to talk about because, like, his choices. Okay, I have now seen two Saw films in four hours. I will have seen three Saw films. But I went through and read the summaries of all the Saws, and it feels like some of the people he like kidnaps and puts into torturous situations have caused accidental deaths, or they they were like the hospital orderly who didn't see that Jigsaw had cancer. But here, it seems a little bit like, Jigsaw could just kill anybody. It seems a little bit like arbitrary. Maybe that's part of what makes it scary. Like if you're doing drugs, you're not really hurting anybody but yourself. But he's like, okay, you must appreciate your life, Amanda. And then for what he says about Adam at the beginning, I mean, it kind of just sounds to me like new metal rap lyrics. Now I see you as a strange mix of someone angry yet apathetic, but mostly just pathetic. So are you are going to watch yourself die today, Adam? Or do something about it? I don't get it. Pathetic, apathetic, pathetic, apathetic.
3: You know, like, <laughs> but that that covers everyone? Yeah, I think if you dig a little too deep, there's not much there. But I think on the surface, it exists really well. Because at the end, when they do reveal that Jigsaw has been on the floor the entire time. They do this flashback of all these moments that we've seen. And I think as a viewer, I'm like, oh, all these pieces connect. And like, no, no, they're just flashbacks to things that we've seen earlier in the film. Like, it wasn't like cut to moments that you could put it all together. It just kind of was a a cool ending. I rewound it like three times. Like, yeah, it gave me the feeling of like, oh, yeah, those are all the connections. I'm like, oh, wait, There are no, those are just scenes. It's like the opening of Mission Impossible when they play the theme, they show you all the little clips from the movie. Like (laughs) here, I felt like it was the end of the movie because I was like, wait, what did I miss? What did I miss? I didn't miss anything. It is, you know, there's a twist ish, but it's not like a, it's not the twist is already revealed by the time the end comes, the twist is revealed.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I think that they were, like, working off, you know, one of the inspirations they pointed out specifically was Usual Suspects. So I think right. they're like, yeah, it's like our Usual Suspects ending.
3: Right, But yes. I also
2: feel like where you see that this movie had no money is because that's not even, like, the only gratuitous flashback for no reason. Like, 42 minutes into the film, there's this extraordinarily pointless flashback of things that literally just happened for absolutely no reason whatsoever. There's
0: someone standing outside here watching
2: i mean when i saw that i was like what is happening here are we just filling this time with like serious shots of danny
3: glover i do believe the answer to that is yes <laughs> <laughs> only because there are so many things at play which is first of all let's just go to james Wan. he does this movie for no money like not like a little bit of money literally takes no salary, opts for a percentage of the film, which works out great for him. Not so great for Carrie Elwes. We'll get into that in a bit. But they're making this movie on a shoestring budget. They didn't have enough shots or takes to fill out most of the scenes. So like the editor, Kevin Gruer. They had to create filler shots by doctoring some of them to make them look if they were filmed through a security camera. They actually even went in for reshoots but didn't have the actors. So there are certain reshoots where you're just seeing like a close-up of a hand or a foot or like a chest just because <laughs> they didn't have the footage. They they don't have it. Like And even these other things that we see in the film, like the car chase, right? They just turned off the lights, added some fog... And then shook cars while filming in front of it, you know, and, <laughs> and 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 truly, sometimes it turns out to be one of the best scenes in the movie, because when Adam, they have that scene where he is feeling like he's being watched in his apartment and he uses the flash from his camera to see who's in his house. Like, that's beautifully done. And that's why I kind of go to the Hitchcock stuff. Like, I think there are... Oh, I just are... realized
2: he took that from, from Silence of the Lambs.
3: Yeah. Yeah. There's some in there, too. And I feel <laughs> right. like, is that also in Rear Window? Maybe it's not, but... Oh, yeah, I think it is. Yeah. These are the issues that you have with a movie that's shot in 18 days. But people won't care about these issues if you give them something that's really fulfilling. And I think that, the again, why this movie works is it's creating a pace, an idea of what's going on. The twist is good enough. And the story keeps on elevating and changing. And it's not just gross out stuff. And you leave having experience and immediately putting yourself in that experience. Because like you said, apathy, not apathy, like this idea, like Adam is us. We could all be Adam. You know, it's hard to envision ourselves being chased by Michael Myers. It's hard to envision ourselves being chased by Scream. Very specific situations, right? Yeah.
2: Especially in a lot of those slash movies that, like, Adam was making fun of. It's like, I'm not going camping with, like, all of my asshole friends and I don't have giant tits. I'm fine. This isn't (laughs) coming for me. But the fact that these guys wake up and they're like, where are we? What's happening? What does this person want? That's freaky. What we need to do is start thinking about why we're here. Whoever
1: brought us here could have killed us by now. But they didn't. They must want something from us. (sighs) question is, what?
3: What's identifiable about these characters is that they've made choices. We've all made choices. Like, oh, I was on my phone during that. Or we don't have to be adulterers. But, like, we've all made choices where we didn't really care or look in a different direction. Like, there are these little moments. And I think they may have wanted... To create this ending that felt like it was jigsaw all along, all the clues were in front of you. They just didn't have time to get it. Because literally, on Jigsaw's bedside table in the hospital, there is a picture that he has drawn of the reverse bear trap. I think they wanted more moments of that, but they just didn't have it like i mean even the like the art department like the all the articles on the wall in that room where danny glover is like hold up trying to figure out who's who the articles like if you look closely are about like stanley kubrick they're not they're not even they didn't even have time to like make the articles look real about this killer you know <laughs> I, I i would i'd even tend to guess and maybe you know more about this that the saw puppet the iconic saw puppet seems to me like total happenstance like we've really embraced that puppet but that puppet doesn't seem to be as big (laughs) of a piece of this puzzle it probably was like in a prop house like that's cool pull it in that's what i feel (laughs) about that puppet it just feels all really like shoved together
2: i mean i will say if you go back and watch the short that they made in order to get this movie made like because they did a version of this short that was like eight minutes long in australia where it's basically just the bear trap scene but in this version uh, Lee is playing the Amanda character. Okay. Here, here's a tiny clip of it. David, you
3: are still alive.
1: <laughs>
0: Most people are so ungrateful to be alive, but not you. Not anymore.
1: Are you grateful, David?
2: If you watch that, they actually have just the exact same puppet. Like, So they're using in the movie pretty much the exact puppet, maybe the exact puppet, that they had already made for no money. Is Jigsaw the
3: puppet or is it just the killer? Or are they synonymous?
2: Jigsaw is just the killer. In my, like, I'm too scared and I don't know if I really can handle watching eight other Saw's. Uh, I like read that in one of the later Saw movies, you find out that like Jigsaw had a child or his wife was pregnant with their child. And so he made a puppet that he was going to give to the child when it was born. But then like somebody
3: fucked up and the kid died. I don't know. Or his wife died in a car wreck. I know a little bit about this uh, because I did. I did have to look the the puppet is referred to as Jigsaw, but also uh, Billy. Um, he's never been called Billy, uh, in the movies, but that was a name that James Wong kind of christened the puppet and it stuck with the filmmakers behind, uh, later entries, right? Do you um, think Billy
2: is a scary name? Because I was going to say no, but then I thought maybe actually, yes. If you call like, that if somebody Billy, came into my room and they looked a little dangerous and their name was Billy, I think that would be scarier
3: to me than Tobin. Well, Tobin Bell is a real person.
2: Yeah. I'm just talking name for name though.
3: Oh, name for name. Tobin- uh, Billy the Killer, I don't know. Billy
2: is capable of anything. Billy's got nothing to lose, and he's like, you can't even Google me later because it's hard to find (laughs) Billy's.
3: Wait, well, let me let me just dig into Billy the Puppet for a second because we know (laughs) that James Wan is a huge fan of uh, Dario Argento, right? Uh, As proven by um, a movie that we did on how this get made malignant. Uh, There's a lot of like little Argento inspirations in his films, but Billy the Puppet you know, acted as this embodiment of the unseen, uh, you know, Jigsaw, Kramer throughout the film. Like he speaks with Tobin Bell's voice. He always wears a tuxedo. You know, he explains the you know, rules of the game to people on TV. It's not until, like you said, not until Saw 4 that we learn that Tobin Bell was a happily married man who was expecting a child with his wife, Jill Tuck, a doctor. And the couple settled on the name Gideon for their unborn son. And he created this wooden doll to give to him which was way less creepy. And then his wife was wounded by one of her patients, this drug addict named Cecil. And then Jill had a miscarriage and lost the baby. And then Tobin Bell is, he's devastated. And then somehow he just fucks around with this doll and it becomes Billy the puppet.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I will say to Billy's credit for a puppet. I think that puppet is incredibly creepy. I yeah. love that he has ping pong balls for eyes. And I love that Billy the Puppet goes on to be such an icon that, like, he makes a cameo in Dancing with the Stars. This is just two people dancing, but I want you to imagine that one of the people dancing is a girl dressed like Billy the Puppet, and the other guy- one is a guy who's dressed like Carrie Elways, like disheveled and all sweaty. Just picture this.
3: Dancing the Argentine Tango with her partner, Alan. It's Amanda Klutz. <laughs>
2: And of course, we have to like give Billy a shout out for being in the greatest advertisement of all time, paying his homage to our queen, Nicole Kidman. Yeah, it does have that kind of like Frankenstein, just Frankenstein's monster thing where you're like, when I say jigsaw, who's raising their hand?
3: Puppets are creepy. Clowns are creepy. That's a creepy clown puppet. I know people might want to argue with me, but the face is painted white and he's got designs. It's a clown. Uh, you know, it could be a doll, It could be whatever. He rides that little weird tricycle. It's creepy. I don't understand the physics of it the same way I don't understand the physics of the Muppets riding bicycles in uh, the Great Muppet Caper, but I'm not going to get into puppet physics right now. I do want to also just say I think what's really interesting about this movie Saw is, yes, it has now a face like the Mike Myers mask, like the Freddy Krueger glove, like the scream mask. Like it's got the thing. That's the thing that people link into because it's hard to be like, like, I could see why they're leaning into it, because especially you said, as the other Saw movies go on, sometimes it's Jigsaw, sometimes it's not Jigsaw. It's copycats. It's real Jigsaw. And then It gets prequels and everything, but I also think that this movie kind of sets the tone for universe building that we're seeing in all of our franchises here because we have the Adam character who continues on uh, throughout the film. We see the backstory of this other character, but there is a Saw universe. They've built out a world, a much bigger world than any other horror franchise, in my opinion. Scream is very much insular Freddie Krueger also stays within a realm, but but Saw I think is more universe buildy than any of the other ones.
2: I mean, that's interesting. Yeah, because I feel like Halloween both got really weirdly into like descendants. I must go after the daughter right. of the person that's that like I want to kill. Too. I must go. Yeah, yes. Jaws did the same thing. Yeah, exactly. And where does that really get you ultimately? Because then you're like, well, I'm not even related to Lori Strode, so who cares? Like, if I just keep away from her entire family, I'm fine. All of us have done something bad enough that Jigsaw would want to kill us. Right. That's a fair thing to say, right?
3: Yes. And And so that makes it unnerving. Or not kill us, challenge us. To live a better life. I know. But oh my gosh, we're probably going to die. We're probably but I mean, going I, to die. I, I understand that. But I do think that there is a difference there. I think that torture devices are there as a timer. It gives you something to work against. It basically says you have to make a choice. It forces a choice.
2: Right. It forces you to choose to want to live.
3: Yes. And I think what I originally thought about this movie was, this is a movie about a deranged serial killer who creates elaborate ways to kill people. But what I'm realizing is, yes, that's kind of true, but it's more like this is a movie about someone who creates a challenge for you to succeed like an escape room and if you escape the escape room you go you feel good about yourself you take a picture you put it on instagram you go yeah i escaped the escape room this is basically by the way also the beginning of escape rooms maybe i was um, wondering
2: that exact same thing i actually went and googled the history of escape rooms and kind of yeah like there was a sort of proto escape room that came out like a year before that said it was more inspired by like the you know the text-based video games of like the 70s oh and yes 80s. okay where you're like stuck in a room and looking for clues. But honestly, this is an escape room.
3: This grim, dirty world is very much embraced in those escape rooms that I've been to. But anyway, the idea like it's giving you a challenge and it's giving you a reason to live. I think that the traps are necessary to motivate action. It encumbers you in some way. It puts a clock on you. You know, the reverse bear trap is amazing. The going through the wire is, I don't understand how... could have gotten out of that i don't remember they say it a lot of things are said here very quickly the danny glover ken lung sections are great but they're kind of they're blowing by stuff like i mean i I feel like there's very much one and done take
2: yeah i think they only had two days with danny glover total so it was just like danny glover get it all in and so you wind up with danny glover just being like i'm a crazy person in a room i'm really obsessive
1: you're you're running you're running scared because because we had you Close this case. Right, right, close it.
2: Right, right scene. Right. We're gonna close scene. By the way, one of the weird stories of this is like, how did Danny Glover wind up in this movie? Danny Glover was like, I went up in this movie not because James Wan had like seen a bunch of my other films, but because James Wan said he had seen me in an infomercial. And so I was like, well, what infomercial is this? And I went digging and I spent a long time when I found an infomercial that came out this year, the year that that made Saw. And I was like, could this be the one? I don't know. I'm going to play it like a joke and say like, it might be the one. Let's just float this out, print the legend. But then after I pulled this clip, I found an interview with James Wan confirming that, yes, this is the infomercial that got Danny Glover cast. And here it is.
3: Daisy Fuentes, Elle McPherson, Rachel Hunter, Danny Glover, Melanie Griffith, Lisa Renna, Patrick Duffy, Minnie Driver, Virginia Madsen, and countless other celebrities have turned to Windsor Pilates to flatten their abs, firm and shape sexy buns and thighs, lose weight, and sculpt long, lean muscles. Pilates? <laughs> I love Danny Glover. I, I love Ken Lung. I love uh, Carrie Elways. And I thought Lee Wennell is great in this. There are moments when all of them are very, very good, and then I also think there are some moments where some of them are are bad. And I and I and I say that uh, with the most amount of love because I think it's this is a movie that's very inspiring, but it also feels like they're shooting so many pages a day. They're moving through this entire thing, and I think that some of the nuances are being missed. But because the movie actually has pace in it, as a a structure that is fun, all these things that you and I are pointing out that we're looking at, we're going, oh, Danny Glover's crazy in a room. It just kind of flies by. We don't exist in it for too long. We're just going, going, going. And I do think that like Carrie Elway's and Lee really hold this entire movie together by kind of creating that tension. And that opening sequence is so strong with the two of them and real that no matter what happens, they're the emotional grounding of the film. And I think it's actually a hard foundation to shake. And I think that when you bring in somebody like Danny Glover, who just carries a gravitas with him from all of his performances, the interrogation between him and uh, Carrie Elway's, I'm like, oh, Danny Glover's effortless in this. Like he's he's playing in a multiple, like he's in his wheelhouse, right? And it's only those moments where you feel like, and I've been in these situations as an actor, where you're like, Okay, we got five more minutes. We got to shoot this scene. Let's go, go, go. And someone else is yelling at you on the other side. Like, okay, yeah, we got, do we get it? Yeah, we got it. We got it. We got it. Like, It's like that panic fire of independent filmmaking. And I feel like they only were burdened by that. And of course, they don't want to come back and shoot more because they didn't get paid. And Carrie always gets the really, the, the rawest end of the deal. Carrie always filed a lawsuit against the producers. I remember this. Basically, he felt like the producers and the production company, didn't pay him fairly because he received a nominal salary with back-end revenues. And that is, again, I have to keep on like throwing my acting card out here, an agreement that you often make for indie films. You will get some of the back-end if in success. In success, you will benefit. That's something that everyone promises. And here's the thing, 98% of of movies do not see that financial success, right? 98%. So you do it and you know it, but you know, like, well, on the off chance that this becomes giant, maybe I'll get a better paycheck. Anyway, Carrie always takes 1% of the profit of Saw. 1%. He's like, whatever, I'll take a gamble on it. But then this movie comes out. It makes a hundred million dollars globally. It apparently is the most successful or profitable horror films of all time. I'll let Jigsaw
2: and Michael Myers fight that one out.
3: Well, but, you know, but for what it cost to make it to what it received, not the franchise, not the world, but that. Okay. Because those movies cost way more than this. And he's like, now pay me. I know this is a success. Pay me. They didn't want to pay him. And you know that he was right because they settled the case out of court. Right? They don't want anyone to know he got paid. Um, but because of this kind of bad blood, your final girl that was, I think, supposed to continue on is not in any of the sequels until 2010, uh, saw 3d where he comes back. But there was this moment, I think that they wanted to continue these stories and kind of build out, but maybe because he didn't come back, they were forced to then go to Adam and then they were trying to. Uh, leave, obviously he was staying with the property and then kind of build out the movie in different ways, you know, so it becomes this world building thing unintentionally just because one of the actors felt screwed over.
2: I mean, I could totally see that. And it's it it's almost tragic and horrific how much that story just repeats itself. Right. Because isn't that just the exact same story that we heard all the way back with Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Like you, we made you all of this money and we, the actors of this film, have seen none of it what yeah. happened this is your territory more than mine but i don't know how on earth they ever prove any of this it's so it seems so exhausting and so aggravating but to that point though like i feel as though this was just put together so smartly like to me this is the template of one of the greatest ways of just breaking into the business you know it's it's kind of like the robert rodriguez mold it's like you do the short film for no money It's tight enough of of an idea that it gets that hook. Everybody wants you. They're looking for you. This isn't even that long after, like, Robert Rodriguez and Tarantino. We're still at the kind of maybe the very end of, like, who's that next wave of new talent that we can find? Who's going to, like, really freak us out? And to, like, somehow get just enough big-name actors in this movie that it makes you seem legitimate. And that legitimacy helps you get seen. And that you can tell from, like, interviews with, like, Lee today... That he's, he knows that James does not love how this movie looks. Because yeah, I have a problem with even how this movie looks. Like, I really hate the color scheme. I just cannot. I hate that monotone brown and gray and digital look of this era. I just absolutely hate it. You can definitely tell that this film would have loved some more rehearsals, loved some more takes. But in a way, just, like, getting it done is the lesson. Like, they got it done. They got it out there. And then everything came from there. It's, like, it's almost like the jigsaw lesson of this film is, like, don't hold out for the perfect opportunity Like, make the opportunity and just make it work. And so I admire that so much about this film, you know, because, like, you can really see how these two kids who are just in their 20s, like, doubled down and invested in themselves and, like, made it happen. And I admire that because it's really hard to do that. And I want to, like, value this as much as I can, even as I say that when it comes to watching this movie, I don't love it. I like I see what I can admire about this film, but I really did not love the experience of watching this because I think just that whole structure that they're actively subverting. I admire it. But my God, so much of this film is just told in like those jumpy flashbacks that make me think of this time period in Hollywood where it was like if you take a plot and you take a script and then you rearrange all the pages and you turn it into like this labyrinthine way of figuring out what happened when and you make it more complicated than it has to be. Then it's like artistic i just hate that type of story structure unless it's done
3: really really well you know i think we come from a culture of people turning down opportunities because it's not exactly right james wan dives in to try to make something and not only does he make it but he doesn't let anything stop him from making it it goes from being a a dvd release to something that it's at sundance there's something that makes a bunch of money and there are things about it that of course he hates because it was super compromised vision. And he tried to do cool things. He couldn't shoot it in the right, you know, frame ratio. He did do interesting shots like using a steady cam for the doctor and 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 doing uh handheld for the Adam character. Yeah, I can tell that at-
2: right away. They like you this idea that like Adam's freaking out and weirdly karaoke is like trying to stay calm just through the camera work.
3: I guess all those things that I don't like. And all those things that I think are funny and bad about it just kind of wash away because I feel like we're watching an episode of like a reality show where they said, okay, make a meal with everything that you have in that refrigerator. And that's what he had in the refrigerator. And you know what? It's going to, the meal is not going to be the best meal of all time, but it's going to be a functional meal. And I feel like this is a functional movie, even though there's a lot of things that would not put this high up on my list. But after watching it, I'm like, I like this. I like this movie. You mean?
0: So that's what this is.
1: Reality TV.
2: I don't think we're disagreeing with each other. I think we're actually agreeing with each other in that I admire this film, but I don't really feel like anxious to watch it again, if ever. And really, I'm just sort of like trying to say that I don't love this time period where it's like drawing attention to fancy writing a, a little bit too much. I mean, I feel like they even titled The Killer Jigsaw because they wanted to highlight the fact that this film is put together like a jigsaw, you know, like right. in the Pulp Fiction model. Like, how do all of the pieces fit together? Because when you think about it, I'm like, well, what is he doing when he takes the jigsaw pieces out of the flesh of people? Why? is it, it feels more like it's about, look at how
3: we wrote the script and less about like, this makes sense. No, I agree with you. And I think this is what I love about horror movies is that they change, they morph. I don't like this period either, but I do think that like our opening monologue, This begets something else, which begets something else, which begets something else. Because I'd argue that James Wan is at the forefront of taking us out of this green, this kind of weird torture porn era and bringing us into something more interesting like Insidious. And uh, these other movies, again, that are adult movies that are kind of cool, that are a little bit different, that are a little bit more like a thriller, uh, less about gore, with every new horror turn... We get sick of it quick and we got to elevate out of it. So we're never in it for too long, like maybe for two or three years, but then we go to another version of it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that that's definitely true.
0: My cat Rachel is the silliest cat I know.
1: One time, she played inside a paper bag for three hours. What a mystery. But I'm glad her health isn't. Thanks to the color-changing litter from Fresh Step Crystals Health Monitoring Litter. This premium color-changing litter has pH-activated crystals that can help me detect potential illness early. That makes it easy for me to stay on top of her health and well-being. I may not understand all of Rachel's silly quirks, but I can keep up with the important things. Find Fresh Step Crystals Health Monitoring Litter at a store near you. Fresh Step is a registered trademark of the Clorox Pet Products Company.
2: I want to kind of jump back to something you were talking about earlier, which is like the jigsaw of it all, the way that these deaths are kind of filmed and the way it approaches horror, which is, I think, what's kind of interesting here is that, you know, eight, when it comes to watching these deaths on screen, it doesn't even necessarily feel like we're watching it through Jigsaw's eyes. Like we're not seeing anybody enjoy these deaths, right? It's not like, oh, look at this, his head's exploding. I mean, most of the deaths in this movie happen off screen, which I think is really kind of surprising. Like the guy stuck in barbed wire, like that happens off screen. We see him dangling, but we don't really get a sense of like his death. And it kind of, I thought that this film would be all like stare at this horrible thing happening, but it's really not. What I think is kind of interesting about that too is like, if we're not watching these murders through the killer's eyes in a way with any kind of pleasure, it doesn't even allow us, the audience, to become complicit in enjoying death. You know, it yeah. makes the death just sort of horrific and at a, at a distance, which I kind of respect about this. And then for me as like an audience member watching this film, where that goes to then is not like, hey, is this sick fun to watch this happen? But more like, do I think that this is fair? You know, like, are we in the audience even in the position of getting to decide, do I think Jigsaw's being fair to us? You know, like, what what do you learn if you die? Like, if you die, you actually don't learn anything at all. Like, you're, he's setting up this lesson trap And then if you don't do it right, then that's just sort of it. And it makes me think about like, A, how we do kind of live in like a vengeful society. You know, like we live in a society where like even good Christian people, good religious people, many of them just believe in punishment.
3: You know, like, you know. I mean, hair shirts. Remember hair shirts? The idea was like, you just wear this shirt that like, this like reverse porcupine shirt to like atone for your sins.
2: Exactly. But I feel like we live in a moment where there is still no culture of like atonement and forgiveness. It's like you did something terrible. You are now punished. And punishment is like your entire life forever going forward. That doesn't feel much better than this so movie. So you like,
3: are you saying to me that you like a serial killer, a killer in these movies that is just a straight up whack job than someone that's trying to be moralistic, right? Because I'm not know, saying that at all. I'm oh, saying like okay. that's
2: what intrigues me about this film. Okay. You know, that that is what intrigues me about this film is like and that's weirdly relatable. I'm saying that we live in a culture that's actually functioning a lot like Jigsaw, where there isn't that yes. much of a of a redemption arc for anybody because there isn't like in a way I was thinking like, what am I going to use in this movie to like connect it to imitation of life? Right, because we just did like the craziest veer from going from Douglas Sirk imitation of life, a conversation I loved having with you to Saw. And I was like, you know what these two movies actually have in common? is they both have this idea of like, here's a splashy death. Here is a lesson learned through death. And that lesson is ultimately kind of cold and pointless. The guy who sets himself on fire, his sin is like what he calls in sick to work too much. Or he's like, I don't know, doing insurance fraud. I'm not entirely sure. I think
3: it was insurance. fraud Again, I'm not, totally sure. And I've went and read a lot of like explanations of this movie. And I don't think many people are very sure. I think it's a little vague. It's a little vague. We just have to understand that everyone's done some shitty stuff.
2: But so like you die for that sin. And as an audience, I'm like, seems a little bit far. Seems a little bit extreme, but it also feels like kind of how the society functions in a little way. And yeah, having a giant death that kind of means nothing. Like in the back of his head, does Jigsaw know like, well, this guy's definitely not going to call in for insurance fraud anymore. He's punished. He's learned his lesson. Like, where where do you even go from that mentally? I do think it's really interesting that this movie comes out, that torture porn in general, a a title that they really rebel against, you know, don't love it being associated with Saw. But the idea of torture porn comes out at a time when, like, all of the headlines in America are about torture and, like, morality. You know, this is during the War of Terror. This is basically, like, when our country is out loud saying hey, is torture justified? And what's the morality of torture? And if we're torturing people for a good reason, are we good or are we also the baddies? And that's fascinating because that well, is yeah. also Jigsaw.
3: Well, I think that the thing about torture that's interesting instead of just killing is humiliation, right? It's 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 seeing somebody at their absolute weakness. Like I think one of the most effective scenes in any James Bond movie, and we talked about this when we talked about Casino Royale, is James Bond being tortured in a way that we never saw James Bond tortured basically kicking slapping, him in the nuts. kicking him in the nuts with a whip and like you see the effects of it in the next scene like he's basically you know in a wheelchair we want to see people pay we also want to have power over people i do think that there's this idea of the public wanting judgment and also wanting forgiveness or acceptance of the fact that, that person did something wrong like did they accept the fact that they did something wrong enough. And I want to bring it to what just happened recently with Drew Barrymore. And now in this situation, I'm on the side of the WGA. I don't think Drew Barrymore should have gone back, but she went out and she said, I'm going to go back. And people just started firing at her, just attacking her. And she then doubled down, which is what we do in our culture all the time. We just double down and we feel like, all right, you know what? You don't get me why I'm doing it. I'm going to explain it, but she didn't explain it better. She actually got more confused i think and then she made this about face she turned and when she turned at least from the wga side it was like drew welcome back we love you drew we told you we'd let you back in and i think that that kind of encapsulates what saw is doing saw is about this idea of you did something wrong you can repent or you can double down and if you repent you can get out with your life intact. And I think that, yes, there's still like memes about Drew Barrymore, but at the same time, I think that we saw the life cycle of Saul through Drew Barrymore. Do you think when
2: Drew Barrymore, about face, took her lumps, do you think she kind of felt like this? <laughs> no! I'm done! Got- I mean, cause like, that's the thing. It's like painful no matter what. And I, I mean, and what you touched on, I think is in there that's really true too, is for a lot of people who make mistakes, the way that they choose to go to get through it is just to keep doubling down harder and harder and harder. Because if, if there is a template that's worked, it is kind of those people who are like, fuck it. You know, like, mm-hmm. I'm not apologizing for anything. We had a whole president like that, you know? Right. And, and I hate that that's the template that works. Because to me, it's like, I want the template that works to be like, I'm sorry, here's what I'll do to make it better. And we can be like, welcome back. Great. Instead of rewarding the people who like, who would give Jigsaw the finger and be like, I'm going to go through the barbed wire and I'm not going to die. And then I'm going to find you and then I'm going to kill you, which actually then that would be fine.
3: It's hard for us to recognize our own faults. And what Jigsaw is doing is challenging us to admit to ourselves we have fucked up, right? Because the doctor can justify this relationship with I don't even know his student. Uh, He's like, we see
2: a tiny bit of her in like the hospital room. She's like, yeah,
3: and calls him doctor still. Creeps me out. But I don't think he would have done that. In an extreme situation, you're forced to look at yourself. And then that's maybe the moment where you can really see yourself as being someone who is like, oh, right. You know, like the drug addict saw herself and she's forever grateful to Jigsaw for doing that. Like, it's like, uh, you won't listen to me. I'll, I'll make you realize it. Like I'll, I'll open your eyes. I'll open your eyes and you can't get away from it. And maybe we try to hide from those parts of ourselves that compromise Our life. I I, I had everything in order.
1: My whole life was in perfect order.
2: You know, Paul, I'm going to float something to you then. You know, we've talked about so many other horror movies like in the build-up to this episode, but you know who I think Jigsaw reminds me the most of? Who? Willy Wonka. I mean, he's basically Death Wonka. He's like, come here, I'm testing your morality, and if you screw up, I'm turning you into a blueberry for the rest of your life and you're going to die, right? I mean, this is uh, just like uh, Willy Wonka, but like with
3: actual death. Amy, you nailed it. You know and I'm here (laughs) trying to make Drew Barrymore parallels and you pull it down. Willy Wonka and Jigsaw, same person. Same person, morality tale. And I think that as we look at this franchise and why it succeeds at some base level, as ridiculous as it gets, the core conceit stays the same that people are being punished, but also have a chance to save themselves.
2: That's Christianity.
3: I mean, there we go. <laughs> and and you know what? If Kirk Cameron was in it, we wouldn't have gone to see it, but it would have been the biggest hit <laughs> of all time. Put Jim Caviezel in there and have Jim Caviezel save these motherfuckers in the bathroom. That He would have done it.
2: I mean, that is actually one of the points they made when they were trying to defend why this movie didn't deserve to be an NC-17. They were like, torture porn, have you seen The Passion of the Christ? One of the producers actually was like, torture porn, have you seen the first 10 minutes of Saving Private Brian?
3: Can I talk to you about that term, torture porn, as we were wrapping up here? I just want to like, it gets a really, like I've used it in this episode, very like, ah, torture porn. Like it's like, it doesn't equate to anything. Like, why do we devalue it? any more than anything else. It's like, is porn gratuitous? Is that what we're saying? Like, porn is gratuitous sex?
2: Is it like base instinct? It's like we're getting to the to the lowest thing in your
3: brainstem that makes you react? Is it? I mean, yeah. I, like, I, I guess like I would say like, when you Google porn, and by the way, a lot of stuff comes up, but when you Google <laughs> porn.
2: When you're 11 years old and you Google porn for the first time.
3: <laughs> uh, my friend's kid uh, Googled breasts, one time.
2: Oh, that's so (laughs) Uh, cute. I hope you got a bunch of chicken recipes.
3: I I mean, me too. Um, But porn is defined as emphasizing the sensuous or sensational aspects of a non-sexual subject and stimulating a compulsive interest in their audience. So, Like we can make an argument that like there was a a time where weather porn was happening with Dante's Peak and Volcano and Twister, right? This idea of like taking something, I guess mundane. I don't know if volcanoes are mundane, but making it like, oh, this is the scary big thing. And I think torture porn was maybe just an embracing of the more gory aspects of what we've already been watching for years. Well, part of it also
2: seems to be like, an audience judgment, too. Like, mm-hmm. if you go to hostel and you like watching these beautiful young girls get carved up, then it turns you on. It makes your pulse race. It awakens It awakens bad things in you. I feel like is what kind of torture porn in that context seems to imply. Right? Like, if you go to hostel and you're like, yeah, I want to see that girl get carved up, then you're like a moralistic pervert or something. You're being led around by the wrong part of your
3: your soul. I guess, or or can you say, like, is that the same thing true for sports movies? Like, I want to see that picture pitch the perfect game. I want to see Rocky win at the end. I wanna see it again make me, oh, I gotta, I gotta do it, I gotta do it. You know, it's like, is that the same thing? You know, is it the same idea? Like we're just we're going there to see something that's like, ooh, ah, ooh, you know, it's like we're we're there for. We're there for it. We're there for this thing. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, look, and I think the torture porn probably is often used for things that are pushing things over the top. Like Terrifier is, you know, considered torture porn, I guess, or you know, or you could put Evil Dead in that category. You could put Pearl in that category. I think it's a little reductive in a way. Well,
2: yeah, because then you start blending into things that are coming, like right after Saw, like in the next couple years after Saw, like the the new French extremity.
3: Mm. where it was oh, a yeah. movement
2: of, like, ultra-gory French films, like Martyrs. High
3: tension, right? Or, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. Like, in Martyrs, gosh, way back in the days of the canon, like, probably in, like, the first year I was dating my boyfriend, he came on, and we he, we had, like, a huge talk about Martyrs, because it's a movie that he deeply respects. And anybody out there who's seen Martyrs is probably nodding along, like, woof, yeah. And if you haven't seen it, it's a very hard watch. You're really watching somebody get tortured for pretty much... Most of the movie, but it turns into almost like a like like watching the silent movie version of Joan of Arc. It like, becomes almost like a transcendental experience
0: mm. in a
2: way that I believe people who find it beautiful. I still find it a little hard because I think I just have a horrible wire in my brain where when I watch blood on screen, I'm like, that's actually happening. Like, I really well, can't separate myself. Well, by the from way, it. that's it's how just, I felt about Raw. so real.
3: Yeah. I mean, Raw was to me really fucked me up. Raw and Hereditary have been the two hardest ones that I've watched in recent memory. I'm like, oh, I can't. It's too much. It's too much for me. It's like, I, um, yeah, it really messes me up.
2: Yeah, and in a way, maybe what that shares in common with Saw is that they these are movies that take the risk of not pretending that horror is funny. Mm. Like, these movies take right. horror really seriously, and they're not yeah. winking at the audience, and they're not making a joke out of it, and they're not like... Ha ha, that chick got stabbed. Like, it is. And I think taking anything seriously is always kind of a risk for any genre. It's easier to be like, wink, wink. It's easier to do the scary movie version of this movie. Which, by the way, the voices you're about to hear in this are uh, Dr. Phil and Shaquille O'Neal.
1: Just shut out the no voice. Own your
0: success.
3: (gasps) Just make the damn basket. What the hell was that for?
1: You hurt my feelings.
3: Your feelings? To hell with your feelings. Everybody with their feelings. I'm obese. My kids are bad. Help me. Help me. Just shut up. Why can't I fix anyone? I'm so dumb and worthless. Mama was right. Mama was right. Hey, hey, hey. Pull yourself together.
2: I mean, right? That's easier. That's easier than watching actual Saw.
3: I guess the idea may be that it's adults adults in horror aren't funny like you're right there's something like oh these dumb teenagers like oh yeah sure they get stabbed they're dumb you know there's an energy i think in a way with kids which is more even fucked up like we're like oh well they deserved it but like you know adults like whoa, whoa, whoa that's they have a family
2: yeah <laughs> you know, i mean like, and i will say like carrie elwes's family is one of the weak links in this movie to me i'm like all right all right all right, mm-hmm. all right. whatever sure i mean i, I like the little argument he has with his wife where it's about like him faking happiness in his life But other than that, it's like I don't know. I mean, this is just completely on me. I hate it in movies where like people wake up from bed with full lipstick on. Just drives me nuts. Can't handle it. Whenever somebody like wakes up in bed and they just have perfect eye makeup and lipstick, I'm like, ugh. It's like I can't take that movie seriously as seriously. It really is like an automatic ding.
3: (laughs) Maybe they didn't have enough makeup people on set to do it.
2: By the way, Paul, I promised myself that I would not end this podcast without saying, can we talk about Amanda's? sleeves
3: on her tank top.
2: She's wearing a tank top Ah! with two sleeves and the sleeves are held up with belts. And I just want to say, God bless 2004 fashion.
3: I have to say that the same way I look at uh, the old films that we do on this show, I never quite know what is just bad fashion or a bad, like, uh, costume design. Uh, And sometimes I just accept it. I'm like, maybe that's the way it was.
2: (laughs) Whatever it is, I'm like, could I bring... Belted sleeves back for fall, and would I want to? Are the Gen Z kids going to beat me to it? Gen Z, are you? Gonna, are you planning in all of this like Y2K fashion to bring back just putting two tubes of fabric and then attaching them with a tourniquet? Because Jess says yes, I'm open. Oh well, then <laughs> if Jess says yes, it is done.
3: You know, and if anyone can explain ultimately why Adam was there, I'd love to know more about it. I, I did Google it. I didn't find a fulfilling conclusion, even on the Wikipedia. So maybe just update the Wikipedia for people like me who watch it and want to know a little bit more about Adam.
2: Can we at least give props to uh, to Lee for making the worst faked death of all time when Adam then fakes his death to try to, like, get Jigsaw to think that he actually died? Oh, my died. God. That fake death is so funny. I just want to play his moaning and writhing. <laughs>
3: Good job. You know, good what job. What I love about that, what I love, love, love about that is also, like, yeah, that was the right acting choice, I feel like. That was a funny choice. Like, he didn't know how to do it. Like, you know, he's freaked out. He's trying his artist. He's acting for the cameras. I, I do love that there is, a, um just talking about, like, the underground mythology. I know we talked about Billy, Billy, a.k.a. Jigsaw, a.k.a. Clown Puppet on Tricycle. Uh, but there's also this other theory that, you know, Jigsaw took muscle relaxers. Uh, and that's why he was able to remain motionless on the floor the entire time. Yeah, here's the how thing. How would you? I guess here's the thing. If I'm chained up to a, a pipe a million things going on and I'm yelling at this guy, like, I, I could twitch a muscle. I don't think anyone's going to be looking that closely at me. I don't think that my dead body is going to be getting that much attention with all the other crazy shit going on. At the end of the day, I don't look for plot holes in my comedy and I don't look for plot holes in uh, my horror and honestly when you are looking at plot holes because I think every movie has them I do believe every movie has plot holes it's just because you your suspension of disbelief has been you're so bored by the movie that you'd start to see them and I think that's a big co- core concept of like how did this get made it's like oh you start to see all these things but if you're actually in it you don't notice a goddamn thing. But I could I could sit down with the greatest movie of all time and go, "But how did he know about that and how did they get over here and how did she come into that without knowing this?" It all falls apart on some level. We have to we have to give over to the movie. So, I'm not going to be dinging this movie that hard. I also don't know if I would consider this movie something that's necessarily worthy of being in the top 100 movies of all time. I think it's an interesting uh chapter in the in the novel that is horror in cinema. But I don't think it does anything revolutionary as much as I think it takes some tropes and twists them a little bit.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's like a valuable course correction. I think it really captures a moment. Like when I watched Saw, I was thinking, you know, oh, this movie also just like is a time capsule of what music videos were looking like in the end of the 90s and the early 2000s and the sound and the feel and like the way that The music that Adam listens to on his headphones Feel The music that you hear when, like, Amanda's thrashing around and trying to get, like, the bear trap off her mouth. (laughs) Like, it captures an era really well. I would put this movie in a time capsule, but I wouldn't put this movie in space. And honestly, I think James Wan would agree with me. I think like James Wan would be like, yeah, it it was good. It functioned at the time. We're glad that movie did it. Uh, And I'm probably more proud of other things I've made since then.
3: I'm glad that it gave James Wan the ability to make whatever he wants to make because there's a childlike joy in James Wan movies. I think that he and Lee Winnell make really interesting, fun, crazy horror movies and I love them all. And even though I think that they're batshit, I think that they're also fantastic. And what I would say is this. I wouldn't put this movie in the 100 best movies of all time, but I would put it um, in a vial in a bathtub or actually <laughs> scratch that in a toilet I would put it in a vial <laughs> in a toilet bowl uh, full of uh, diarrhea. And then if the aliens wanted to go fish it out, then they could actually watch it.
2: Okay, challenge is on. Challenge is on, aliens. But for now, on Saw, it is... Oh! Well, Paul, are you ready to do another intense about-face? Yes. <laughs> okay, good. Because next week, we are going to honor a person who is being honored so much right now in Los Angeles and is so good to see. A person who is like the one of the directors nearest and dearest to my heart. They have a new exhibit that's happening at the Academy Museum. They have been having retrospectives. This is their time to once again shine. This is the person who, you know, a story I'm sure we will talk about uh, when we do next week's episode really put me on the track for being a movie critic who takes my friends to see movies that they then get mad at me about. This turns out to have been the first cult movie I ever saw, but I didn't know it was a cult movie by a cult director when I saw it because I saw it when I was a kid and I loved it deeply. We are going to do the John Waters 1988 Hairspray. Oh, oh, a movie so near and dear to my heart that I'm very excited to talk about it.
3: I have never seen this movie again. I'm going two for two. You've never seen the Hairspray? No, I lived above um, the theater that it was in on Broadway. And every day from my window, I would see the giant Hairspray can. I mean, I know it's a movie before it was a Broadway musical. I would see the giant Hairspray can shoot out, you know, the the fake Hairspray, the steam Hairspray. You know, I was above it. So it wasn't like right at eye level, but it was a great uh, image all the time to look out my window and see that Hairspray shooting out all the time.
2: Oh, wow. Oh, I'm excited for you to see Hairspray.
3: I should have gone and seen it. It was right down the block. I should, I mean, just no, I want your first ride.
2: experience to be the real Hairspray. This okay. is the real Hairspray. This is Hairspray.
3: All right. I can't wait. Amy, we'll do it up. Take a listen to the trailer for Hairspray. It's Madison time. Hit it. Baltimore, 1962. Oh, you're looking good. A the heyday storm. of hairdos. And dogs.
1: We shall well, overcome said, someday. Not with to no, that here, man. you won't.
2: Heartthrobs and hefty girls.
3: Mama, welcome to the '60s.
0: <sighs>
3: Hot dates and hair talkers.
0: No matter what you've heard, we are gonna teach the white children how
3: to do the bird. Flop your I'm i can't see through her hair all right you can get hairspray wherever you get your streaming films uh it's available for you also at your local public library you can use services like canopy will allow you to rent these things for free on your ipad or on your apple tv or roku whatever you use canopy is a great source to use your local public library so check that out before you uh you know I have to worry about signing up for a service. A big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, and our executive producers, Cody Fisher and Amelia Chapello, and our MVP. Molly Reynolds, our theme song is by Michael Cassidy and our fan art is by Kim Troxell. Follow Unspooled on Twitter and Instagram and join in the conversation about all things Unspooled on the Paul Shear Discord at discord.gg/paulshear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com/unspooled and you can get a deck of Unspooled playing cards and more merch at podswag.com. Finally, See the official API list of Unspooled Films and more about the show at unspooledpod.com. Making my cat happy is my number one priority And Fresh Step Outstretch litter helps me do just that Meet Mr. Mittens Mitty for short Ah! Mitty is happiest when his litter box is clean and fresh And Fresh Step Outstretch is amazing at absorbing waste and odor We sure have found our common ground Haven't we? Happy cat, happy life Find Fresh Step Outstretch at a store near you Fresh Step is a registered trademark of the Clorox Pet Products Company Certain trademarks used under license from the Procter & Gamble Company or its affiliates